So let's begin with a very brief exercise before the meditation. You don't need any special posture, but it'll be a very short exercise, but it will require you to have your mind very, very quiet and very focused for a very short time. It might be helpful to also close the eyes because you'll be single-pointedly focusing your attention. So you don't need any visual distraction. Now I'd like you to direct your attention to my left, out into quite far, it could be a quarter of a mile away, maybe even further. Listen very, very closely and see if you can detect the sound of something like an earth, earth mover, or maybe some construction. Can't quite tell what it is, but maybe an earth mover, way off to my left, again rather distant. Listen very closely to my left. quite distant, maybe even more distant. See if you can identify a sound that's hard to articulate, so I won't give you an image. It's kind of undefined, but very distant, quite faint, way off to my right. Attend very closely, focus really clearly, and see if you can pick up that sound so that you could describe it if necessary. So those were two different exercises. One gave you something of a target, something clear, like earth mover, that kind of sound, right, way off of there. The other one, undefined, just very, very faint. So you don't quite know what to look for. It's kind of like an open probe, okay? Do I pick up anything way off there to the right? For myself, I couldn't pick up either one of them. I listened, I couldn't get anything at all. Maybe you could, and I couldn't. But I'm not just jerking you around. Um, I'm kind of jerking you around, but it's been fun. <laughs> but in different ways. In different ways. When we did the, uh, the backup plan from Dujam Lingla, the end of his teaching, on the transitional phase of living, where you imagine sending your awareness up, to that central Buddha field of Akanishta and the out in front, <coughs> out in front to the pure land of, of Akshobhya, white, and off to your right, right to the south, the yellow pure land of Ratnasambhava, behind you to the west, the red pure land of, Su of Sukhavati, and then off to, the, to your left, the green pure land of Amoka City. When you're doing that, he said, each one is as vast as the absolute space of phenomena, Dhammadhatu. In other words, just limitless vast. And that's what he's inviting you to visualize. So in, those, in, those, in that practice, which is then optimally implemented, when you're in the bardo, 
then you really do have a target, right? It's white, it's got a palace, there's somebody there, and you actually project yourself. Imagine doing the circumambulation, the offering, receiving teachings, empowerment, and so forth. That's a target, right? And you had four into this vastness in front of you, to the in front, to the right, behind you, to the left, when you come back to the center. But all of this, in one way, it really is, is designed, kind of just as a secondary aspect of it, just expanding the space of your mind, you know, going way beyond any ridiculous notion. The space of your mind is somehow inside your head, vastness out in each direction, right? But with a target, with a visualization. Very meaningful. The Buddha taught something like this in the Pali Canon, obviously not with the pure realms, pure realms but when he was teaching the kasinas, the ten kasinas, the whole notion of expanding the kasina. I won't elaborate on that, but it's there in the Pali Canon. When he gave me the first exercise, because when I was in my room earlier, I was picking up some construction noise out there. Couldn't pick it up here, but I figured, well, why not? Because I wanted to give you a target. Earth mover. You, everybody knows what an earth, earth, earth mover looks like, and everybody knows what they sound like. So you're going out there like, like a little foraging mission but kind of like a target, something in mind, earth mover, grunt, 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 ah, ah, ah. And are you picking up anything like that? You've got a stalt in your mind if you're seeing there, if there's a match. So if you heard a bird chirping, you'd look right through it. Not that, not that. So you're looking for a target, something to lock onto, right? And if you found it, then you have better hearing than I do, right? But then when I said, well, now look out to the right, now quite distant, quite distant, but I didn't give you any target. I said, well, I can't define it, can't explain it, but just see what you pick up. Then what did you do? If you had an image, that would actually get in the way because then it might not be the right image, right? So it would be best to do that. That's why I didn't give you anything to work with. I said, it's ill-defined, I can't give a characteristic. Just look way over yonder with your mind. But it's auditory. And there's something quite neat about auditory because it is a space. We can do that. We can identify a distant sound. We've done it so many times. Oh, did you hear that gunshot way over there? Did you, can you hear the faint sound of the surf way over there? Can you, you know, can you hear? And so we do have this three-dimensional auditory space in which we can, with our two ears vectoring in, we can tell whether a sound is coming from nearby, middle distance, or very, very far away. We do it all the time. Thunder, the sound of thunder and so forth, distant thunder, and so on. But what, why I did this, as a prelude to the practice we're about to do, especially the second aspect, is that what you were doing there, if you're doing what I was doing, because I did it too, I wasn't just sitting here waiting for you to finish, is I was casting my attention there, but I found no object. But I was directing my awareness off into the space to my right, with no image, just very attentive. And I would have said 10 kilometers if I thought you could do that, or 100, or 1,000, or a trillion kilometers, if that, anything like that comes to mind. I just said, well, far away, that's enough. But this is in the mood, the second one, is in the mood of the practice Padmasambhava is about to share with us here, from his natural liberation. It's not the practice with a target, as in the visualizations of these different Buddha fields. It's not like that. And therefore, it's not like, can you hear the distant sound of earth movers off to my left? Image comes to mind, the kind of sound to be attending to, and that means screen out everything different. So you're not coming in. That, with that one, you are coming with an idea, a target, something to match, right? Not that, okay? So not Akanishta, etc., not that, the final one. Where you are directly attention out, 
You really are doing it. You're not listening. If you hear something nearby, like the sound of the air conditioning, you just cut right through that one. You know that's not what I'm referring to. You can all hear that. No way over yonder. But there the attention went out, but with no target. And maybe you picked up something faint, but maybe, like me, you didn't. In which case, your awareness did go way out into the auditory field. But it, there, but there was, it was like shooting an arrow into space, and it just, no target. So it just, like that. Right? This practice is, is like the last one, where he's going to invite us then to direct our awareness up into the space above us. And I'm not going to give it all away, but you probably read it but sending directly up in the space in front of you, as far as your awareness can reach, but with no target. No image, nothing to thunk into, nothing to strike, right? Just send your awareness up. So we'll be going up, to the right, to the left, down. And all of this is my, my now, that's just fact. You can see it, I'm gonna read the text. My interpretation, so I, like, I like to distinguish clearly. So you know, you know, my interpretation may be wrong, but. That's a good translation. So the translation, I would say, is not wrong. Okay, here's an interpretation. And that is this, and then we'll have one more stage tomorrow, is almost the penultimate phase of this practice of shamatha without a sign. It's what, it is without a sign. Because there's no target. It never goes to thunk. Your awareness doesn't strike something and say, gotcha. But it is this expansion, this releasing into an open expanse and with no target. No target means no sign. Right. Now, my interpretation, I think all of, all of what I've just said, I think is really very clearly true. My interpretation, though, is that um, when he gets to the final phase, which we'll get to tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, it'll be the end of the teaching of the actual methods of Shamadu without a sign, he's going to say, now release your mind into space. That's the last thing he says in terms of method. There'll be some postscript about the practice, how it's going well, and so on. But in terms of sheer method, release your mind into space, and then he stops, and he doesn't say, do this for one day. He says, do this until your mind settles in its natural state. And by now, this should be vividly clear. That, that means your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness. Right? But in terms of sheer method, that's it. And so that's the culminating one. That's where there's no further, there's no further instruction. He simply says, now, okay, continue. Whether it's you know, one week, like Shapkaramsu, who knows how long it took him, but he said, I did it, and I just went there and did it. Or whether it takes three months, three years, three lifetimes. He's really saying, you need this, you know. You, you need to do this, and so do it as long as it takes. Uh, it's not optional. If you want to follow this path, this is not optional. This is, this is not optional. This is one of the required courses. But this, the practice for today where we're directing it up into the space above us, and so on. Here's finally, I'm going to say it, my interpretation is, this is like warming up for a marathon. All right, you've gotten in your marathon suit, and you see, there it is, There's, that's going to keep me occupied for a couple of hours, two, three, four hours, whatever, how long it run, takes you to run a marathon. But before doing so, everybody who has any sense at all, you warm up, you don't just kind of start galloping, right? You're stretching here, and you're stretching there, I've seen them do it. Make me tired to watch. <laughs> it makes me feel, gosh, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> and then I just lie on my back and <laughs> rest it away. That's <laughs> my belly gets madder. <laughs> but it's, I think it really is like that. It's warming up. 
It's warming up. It's getting into the mood. You, you do have no target, but you're expanding. You're loosening up. You're kind of like just that. Expansing, loosening up, easing up, getting a good spaciousness there. And then, here's the point. When you release your mind into space, you're not releasing it into a little cubicle. You know, like that big. You're releasing it into an open, objectless expanse that has no boundaries. That's kind of important. Not inside your cranium or inside your room and thinking, well, that's enough, isn't it? No, it's not enough. It's space with no boundaries. Okay. So for this practice, any posture is good as long as you really feel very relaxed, very much at ease. For this whole genre, this whole sequence of shamatha without a mind, without a sign, it will not work very well. It will not work very well. Unless you do have that core sense of ease. If your body is in core sense of ease, relaxation, if your body is feeling uncomfortable, if it's painful, if it's stressed, feels rigid, taut, what have you, find another posture. Find another posture. And, uh, and if, you, if it takes some training to find another posture, like supine position or in other place, you could be when you're at home, find an easy chair, some chair that really supports you. But it really is important for this practice. It's not one of those things you push through my hand over, I didn't do that intentionally, but that's always what happens when I say something like that. There's the mudra. Push through. You know, push through. Where's your true grit? Where's your stiff upper lip? You know, I've never wanted to have a stiff upper lip. I thought that would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> then you couldn't smile. You didn't. All the time. I'm giving you stiff upper lip, y'all. Stiff upper lip. Okay. So no stiff upper lip. Buddhists never say stiff upper lip. Only the British get to say that. Buddhists, no, no. No stiff upper lip. <laughs> get comfortable. Supine position, whatever you like. We'll jump right in. Step by step, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Then gently calm and soothe the conceptually turbulent mind with mindfulness of breathing for a couple of minutes, with counting or not as you wish.
Anasambhava continues, then do as before, which means position your body in a suitable posture. Now alternately, concentrate your consciousness tightly, wholly concentrating it without wavering, and then gently release it, evenly resting it in openness. Commentary. This does not entail moving your attention hither and yon, moving it here and then out, in and out. It's not it. It's more like a light bulb that has variable wattage, and that is, it can be bright and brightened and then dimmed, brightened and dimmed. With the dimmer, you all know it. So the light bulb isn't moving about. But it's getting more intense, brighter, sharper, clearer, and then softer. So let your awareness be still, but then brighten it up, intensify your awareness as you concentrate right in upon that experience of being aware, and then release, release into the openness of space, but again, not moving out into space, just like opening your hands without moving them about. Open your awareness like a flower opening, but without moving about. Concentrate and release. Join the rhythm with your, with your breath, if and only if you find it helpful. If you find this alters the flow of the breath, if you find this starts to modify or regulate the breath, then disengage. Let your breath flow unimpededly, naturally, with no intervention or interference. This is important. Baba continues, again concentrate and again release. In that way, meditate with alternating constriction and release.
at times. Steadily direct your gaze up into the sky. This, of course, is not your visual gaze, but the gaze of your awareness, the gaze of your attention up into the sky, into the space above you. Steadily focus your awareness with the desire to be without anything on which to meditate. again. Commentary, just let your awareness come to rest then in its own place, neither going outwards nor inwards, just resting right where it is, with no extension, no effort, with no direction or target. time steadily, unwaveringly, direct your awareness into the space on your right.
relax again, let your awareness rest in its own place. Time is directed to the left. again. <clears throat> Rest in that natural stillness of awareness. It is still not because you're grasping onto it and holding it tight, but precisely the opposite, because you're releasing all grasping that sets it into motion. Your awareness rests in its natural stillness, its natural luminosity, its natural cognizance, its own nature just as it is.
at times directed downward. Commentary, this of course is downward into the space of your mind, not into the earth, nothing to solid, nothing visual. Just drop your awareness into an open space beneath you, with no target, nothing on which to meditate. Relax again. No effort, no striving, no extension of awareness. Just let it rest. Right where it is.
He concludes during each session, rotate the gaze around in those directions. And I can give a very brief vocabulary lesson. Because the words can be very helpful. And I've reviewed a couple of them already, actually three of them, so there won't be a whole lot to add. Very useful. 
So just extremely brief review of the obvious, and that is shunyata, shunyata. And the Tibetans tend to translate very literally, very, very literally. Shunya means empty, like an empty pot, an empty cup, it's empty. And then shunyata turns it into an abstract, turns an adjective into an abstract noun, emptiness. It's a good translation. And then we have a term that is a synonym to that. I mentioned before also. We have the word dharma. Dharma means phenomena. It means dharma. dharma is referring to the phenomena that appear to the mind. The appearances, the events that we apprehend. Phenomena. The domain of mental experience is called dhammadhatu. The domain of dharmas. And dharmas are any type of phenomena that we apprehend with mental awareness. So dharma. But then they, and that's a noun, of course. That's not an adjective. But now they take the noun and turn it into an abstract noun. So dharma-ness, something like that, from the Sanskrit, or chu-yi, yi is the ka, chu-yi, dharma-ta, chu-yi. And yi means just itself, itself. So phenomenon, phenomenon themselves, or phenomenon itself. What, what are they getting at here? I mean, there's a phenomenon. The phenomenon, of course, is how it appears. It's, it's what's coming up. But the tricky part of reality is that appearances ever so often are misleading. And that is the way things appear is contrary to, incompatible with the way they actually exist. And so to understand dharmas, that means you need to understand how they actually exist. The Tibetan is niluk, their mode of existence. How do they exist? To know how they exist, you must know where they're coming from, where they're arising from. And so the how they exist, the very essence, what is their essential nature, their real nature, not simply how they appear, that's misleading, but what is their real nature? Well, then we call that dhammata, dhammata, and that is synonymous with emptiness. And the phrase that leaps to mind is from the Heart Sutra, emptiness is form, form is emptiness, apart from emptiness there is no form, apart from form there is no emptiness. That is, they're non-dual. So the emptiness, the forms themselves are empty. Emptiness itself is manifesting as form. But when you realize the emptiness, then you've actually realized the nature of the form, right? Not simply their appearance, how they appear, but actually what is their nature, right? So that goes to the ultimate nature. You know, to, to realize the ultimate nature, the nature of existence, that's what liberates. That's inner core, that in essence, that's what liberates. And this misleading, this incongruity or incompatibility between how phenomena appear and how they actually exist, that carries over right into the dream state. And that is, even in a dream, and oddly enough, even in a lucid dream, when you're really clear, yeah, this is a dream, the wall still appears to be there from its own side. People still seem to be really over there, right? And you know perfectly well they're not, but they still appear that way. And comparably, it's said in the Sutriyana teachings, like in the Prajnaparamita, the Abhismaya Lankara, it said, even when you commit, become an Arya Bodhisattva, I mean, you're so exalted, you have incredible bodhicitta, you have that direct realization of emptiness, unmediated, non-conceptual, non-dual, you've totally fathomed emptiness, right? While in meditative equipoise, you're just resting in this space-like samadhi, in which all appearances vanish. All appearances vanish. Gelam Rinpoche had meditated for years on emptiness. He told me that when you're meditating and meditating an emptiness, and the mind goes totally non-conceptual, 
that even if your eyes are wide open, you're, you're not withdrawing your attention into the substrate. You're not doing that. This is not shamatha. You're resting there. You're practicing vipassana. And when you gain realization of emptiness, with your eyes wide open, ears wide open, all the senses wide open, but your mind going non-conceptual, if you're gaining, gaining a non, an unconceptually unmediated, right? Conceptually unmediated realization of emptiness, then all appearances vanish. You've not slipped into the substrate consciousness. There's been no withdrawal of awareness at all. You are attending to the nature of phenomena, but in the sheer absence of conceptual designation, then all these phenomena, all these objects, all these things that populate the world around you, your body, your mind, and so forth, all the contents of the phenomenal world, they all vanish. And he explained why. All of them arise independent upon conceptual designation. They don't exist there from their own side. They arise independent upon conceptual designation. But you're not conceptually designated. And therefore, there are no appearances. There are no phenomena for you, not from your perspective. All there is for you from your perspective as you're resting in the space-like meditative equipoise of an Arya Bodhisattva's non-dual, non-conceptual, unmediated realization of emptiness, all appearance of vanish. Now you realize Niluk, now you realize Dhammata, Dhammadatu, absolute space of phenomena, Shunyata. And then you emerge from, here, here's the great irony in a way, when you emerge as an Arya Bodhisattva, you're coming out of that glorious, incredibly liberating, unmediated, non-conceptual realization of emptiness, and you're back in Phuket, or wherever you happen to be, and you're seeing the environment, you're seeing there's your home, there's the pot, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they still appear as if they're from their own side. They still do. Like, I thought I'd be over that by now. Uh-uh. They still lie. They lie to you before you had direct realization of emptiness, and they continue lying to you after you've had direct realization of emptiness. Well, the parallel is there. When you're in a non-lucid dream, everything seems to be really there, right? Really there objectively. Of course, you're fundamentally deluded, so why shouldn't, you, why shouldn't appearances be misleading since you got them, you're getting everything wrong anyway? But, you know, check out your next lucid dream. See if it's not the case. You come up to a wall, doesn't it appear to be there? And if you walk over to the wall and you go, it certainly, thing, it certainly looked like it was there, and lo and behold, I knocked on it, and there it was. It certainly appears to be there. I even knocked on it, you know? And so, but you know it's not true. If you're really lucid, well, you know it's not there from its own side. Yes, it appears, and you know with certainty there is no wall there. There are no molecules there. There's nothing there, because you are a dream. You are dreaming, of course. Right? I find that quite interesting. We'll get to that. We'll return to that in a minute, a little while. So then, there we have dhammata. But then we have this term, not so commonly used, but it does crop up, crops up a lot in Dzogchen literature and elsewhere. Chitta, okay, chitta. Phenomena seem to be out there, right? I look over at Brian. Brian's way over yonder. Oh, there he is, way over there. Where's Brian? Way over there. You know, right over there. Over there. And where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm over here. Not quite sure, but I'm definitely over here. 
I'm not quite sure when I'm hitting the target. Over here anyway. Chittata. The chitta seems to be really over here. The subject, the observer, the agent, did you check it out? Seems to be over here. This side. This side. I'm observing with my mind. I'm attending with my mind. My mind's over here. I'm looking at the phenomenon over there. My mind's over here. I'm looking at my thoughts over there. My awareness is over here. I'm looking at the space of the mind over there. Even the space can seem to be similar a little bit over there, whereas I'm a bit over here. The perspective is on space, space is over there, or all around, but not quite where I am. So that polarization of the phenomenon being out there, but they're not really, that's dhammata. And the mind, the subject, the chitta, seemingly to be really over here, but it's empty. But now when speaking of jitta-tā, it's not simply the emptiness of the mind. That's very important, the emptiness of the mind, that it has no inherent existence of its own. But in particular, I can say this with confidence, in the Dzogchen context, when you say jitta-tā, mindless, what is it that enables mind to be the mind? What, from, from what does it spring? From what does it, what do, from what does it originate? Yeah, exactly. Oh, Rigma. Pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. So in this, in this context, Dzogchen context, Shizata is referring to the ultimate nature of the mind, not simply in terms of its emptiness, but in terms of its ground awareness, primordial consciousness. Dhammakaya, Tathagata-garva, Sugata-garva, all of these are synonyms. So one seems to be like the ultimate nature of the phenomena appearing to the mind, the other one the ultimate transcendent nature of that which is apprehending, chitata, pristine awareness. So we have on the one hand, here's another synonym I mentioned before, dhanadatu, the absolute space of phenomena, absolute space of phenomena, and that is emptiness, from which all appearances arise and into which they dissolve, and they're all non-dual from of the same nature as this emptiness, this dhammata, this dhammadatu. So such is the nature of the ultimate mode of existence phenomena, and now the ultimate mode of existence, the root, the core, the ground of the mind is primordial consciousness. But the dhammadatu and primordial consciousness are primordially non-dual, indivisible, have never been separated. They're not unified. They're not brought together. They were never separate. They were always coextensive, of the same nature, primordially, indivisible. That's kind of important. And to realize that, to view reality from that perspective, of the non-duality of Dhammadhatu and primordial consciousness, to view reality from that perspective, well, that's the great perfection. That's Mahasandhi, great perfection. So a fair amount of that is repetition, but now I'll just introduce a couple more terms. It's kind of interesting. And that is there's there's a Tibetan the there's a Sanskrit tata. 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 In Tibetan it's tejin. Like that. But not like it's not like that versus like this. Just kind of like 
like that. It's kind of the gist of Neither here nor there. Just like that. Well, like, like that. Tijin, like that. Where you're not distinguishing, was that a subject, was that an object, was that a phenomenon, was that mind? You've cut through the very duality of subject-object, cut through any even nominal duality between Dhammadatu and primordial consciousness. It's cutting through. It's cutting through even nominal duality between subject and object. It's just that. Like that. Okay, Tejin, Tata. Well, let's turn that into an out. Tatata. Tatata, that's what it's called. That's it. Thatness. Thatness, or sometimes called suchness. Tatata. Right? Or in Tibetan, Tejin Yi. There it is. They, they really are literal translators. Tejin Yi. Tejin, like that. Like thatness. Right? That's not differentiating the thatness of phenomenon, the thatness of mind. It's just There's nothing to say. So in the Saddhamabhundarika Sutra, the, the, the White Lotus Sutra, when the Buddha simply holds up the lotus, and then someone realized, was it, I can't remember what it was, not much of a scholar, but someone had realization right there, Buddha nature. Just holding up the lotus, that was enough. And then, just that. Just that. Or one, I don't know the Sanskrit, but I know the Tibetan, I really like it. Te Kwana. Te means that. Kwana means just. Just that. But not just that, which is just this. Just, you know, just that. Te Kwana. And then they say Te Kwana Ni. Just that. Well, of course, that's the same. Just that. And then we have Tathagata Garva, or Tathagata. Tathagata, Tathana, remember? Like that. And Gata means gone. Gone like that. Tathagata. Tathagata, one of the epithets of the Buddha, synonym of Buddha. A Tathagata is a Buddha. A Buddha is a Tathagata. Gata means gone. So gone. Like that. Or gone to just that. A Buddha is one who has just gone to that non-duality, that primordial non-duality of primordial consciousness and, and absolute space of the non, has gone to the ultimate. Tathagata Garva, and then Tathagata, one who has gone to that. Another synonym of that is Sugata. Sugata. Dewarashepa. Dewarashepa. Su. As in sukha. Dewa is sukha. So one who's gone to bliss, one who's gone to eudaimonia, ultimate bliss, immutable bliss, and one who's gone to that, sukata, sukata. So the first Buddhist I ever met up in Norway, his name was sukata. Sukata. One who's gone to bliss. One who's gone to the bliss of perfect enlightenment. Sugata, synonym of Tathagata, synonym, synonym of Buddha. 
But then we see in the Supriyana literature and Dzogchen literature and Vajrayana, then we see this Tathagata Garba. Tathagata Garba. Garba means womb in Sanskrit. Womb. Womb. That from which there is birthing. And so it is said that all the Tathagatas of the three times, all, the, all those who have achieved Buddhahood in the past are achieving Buddhahood in the present, will do so in the future. They're all emerging from the same womb. It's Buddha nature. Buddha nature. Pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. So that's the lama. That's the mother. That's the source, the origin, the womb. All Buddhas are displays of that. And likewise, another one that crops up a lot in these um, visionary writings of Dujum Nyingma, the term that he uses more often than, well, he uses a lot. I won't say I haven't counted. But Sukhatagarpa comes up an awful lot. Sukhatagarpa, Sukhatagarpa. The womb of the Sukhatas. The womb from which all the ones who have gone to bliss. The bliss of what bliss? Immutable bliss. The immutable bliss of pristine awareness, of primordial consciousness. It's the womb of them all. So, that was your little vocabulary. Now I'd like to turn to a topic quite important and with a novel phrasing. Could be wrong, but I don't see how I can be wrong. Maybe that's just because I'm ignorant. So I could be wrong. But this, the phrasing here is novel. I've not heard anybody else say it. But I don't see how you can avoid it. This is from the Zotian perspective. And the phrasing that I'm going to use is that in the West, in, our, in the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman, this defines Western civilization. Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman. That's it. That's unique. Nobody else has that. The Mayans, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, so on. No, this defines Western civilization. Right? It's kind of obvious. If you take out the Judeo-Christian, well, then it's no longer Western civilization. Take out the Greco-Roman, that's not Western civilization either. That's Semitic. Right? Bring the two together and integrate them. Well, that's... that's that's the West, that's Eurocentric civilization. And all of science is born out of that. The Indians got in later, much, much later. And some Chinese got in, Japanese got in, but they were, they were latecomers to the party. The, the, the banquet had been spread before any Europe, non-Europeans got in. I mean, really, we, that is, Euro, Eurocentric people, Australians, New Zealand, Americans, Canadians, and so forth, we, we set the whole stage. And when we're, when we're preparing dessert, then we say, anybody else want to pitch in? And then we have some brilliant Indian scientists, Chinese, Japanese, and so forth, but you know, we lay the table. And so from this perspective, this Eurocentric perspective, we speak without a second thought. We never even consider, hardly even comes to mind to doubt it, the universe. The universe, right? That's what the, the universe. Uh, Uni-verse, one verse, one place. Well, that's what the whole Judeo-Christian tradition says. God created, one God created one universe. And did it before we came along. But one God, one universe, very heavy on the one business. This monotheism with intensity. And God didn't try, and he didn't run experiments. He did one, he did it right. He was happy when he finished. It's good, stop doing it. Rested, 
said, well, this land is a magical state, I meant. <laughs> what else would he be doing? You know, when all this work is done on this, um, after the six days, then he's going to, I think, kind of like, you know, rest. In any case, the universe, we just take it for granted, universe, universe. Right? It's not so clear in modern physics by the time we run that, run that movie forward into the 21st century, or the 20th century, the 21st century. It's not so clear there's one universe. There may be multiverses. I mean, this is a very serious consideration in modern physics multiple interpretations of quantum mechanics and so on. I won't elaborate on that. But from this Dzogchen perspective, well, we've already had five Buddha fields, right? Five Buddha fields. One in the center, one in each of the four directions, right? And then you hear about Shambhala, and you hear about the pure land of Padmasambhava, another one for Vajrayogini, another one for Apadavadishvara, another one for Maitreya. It's getting pluralistic pretty quickly, and that's on the transcendent level. But also multiple worlds, multiple worlds. In the general Buddhist world, multiple worlds, multiple worlds. And the notion that our earth is in the center of the whole shebang never comes up, ever. It's just totally alien to the Buddhist world. That our planet here is the center of the entire universe, nowhere to be found. Right? Just the opposite. So all of that is just straight. That was just history lesson, a tiny bit of Buddhism 101. Here's the novel phrasing coming out of Zokchen. I could be wrong, but I'd like somebody to show me if I am. And that is most explicitly from this Zokchen perspective. Try on the notion that there is one universe for every century being. Multiple worlds, multiple worlds. A theme comes up, it's the Everett theory of quantum mechanics. But I'm not going there. Just the very notion that in the Vajrayana, it's okay in particular, when they say you're at the center of your mandala, you're in the center of the mandala. You're in the center of your mandala. Your mandala is the world you're experiencing. Of course, you look in all directions, you are in fact in the center. It's kind of obvious, right? You're not a little bit off-center, you're exactly in the center. But the notion that this is not just nominal, not just a trick, not something cute, but in fact that there is one universe where every sentient being, and that includes aphids, caterpillars, reptiles, and devas, hell beings, predators, and so forth and so on, that every sentient being is in the center of that sentient being's universe, including those in the form realm and formless realms. Now this is implies solipsism. Obviously not. We don't even have a word for it. Solipsism, I don't know how you can say it. It's a silly idea. That I exist, but you're figments of my imagination. That's too silly to even talk about. Obviously not true, so we forget about it. But there's this phrase from the Abhidhamma Kosha. It's so easy to remember. I mean, I, I memorized it so years ago, just so easy. Because it's, if it's hot, you can hear it. Jika lala lele jum. Jika lala lele lala means the myriad worlds. The myriad worlds, not the universe. The myriad worlds, arise from karma, from and karma, the same word in Tibet, got it? The myriad worlds arise from karma. So it's core Buddhist. It goes back to the Pali Canon for everything else. The, the, the universe wasn't just dumped on us by something else, by the blind forces of nature or some god who did it to us. The, the myriad worlds 
the six realms of experience, the multiple world systems, we may call them galaxies, we may call them galactic clusters, solar systems, planets, and so forth, the myriad worlds arise from karma. But of course, there's not a, there's individual karma, something karma that we enact, that we do on our own. We do this all the time. You go into our room, do something all by yourself. That's your individual karma. Nobody else is participating. Right? But then right now, we here in the room, there's really nothing, nothing collective here. Some shared motivations, some shared endeavors, shared practices. When a country goes to war, a lot of shared karma, a lot of collective karma from that. Or when a church gathers funds to help people who have just suffered from an earthquake or some other natural cataclysm, all the members of the church will participate in that. That's collective karma. Very nice collective karma. So there's collective of a church, there's collective of a country, but there's also collective karma of a species. Species. So we human beings, homo sapiens sapiens. Been around, I just checked, for about 200,000 years, they say. And so, given the karma that propelled us into, now this is straight Buddhism, right? Given the karma that propelled us into the so called human realm, this class of existence as human beings, by the karma of that, of course, we have very similar brains. It's human brain, human heart, nervous system, human body, and so forth, independent upon the human nervous system, human brain human sensory faculties, visual, auditory, and so forth, independence upon that, since very similar, very similar, right? Also, also organs, united, Martin and I could swap kidneys, we could swap livers, we could swap intestines, we could swap, I think I want to swap, you've got a much better model than I have. She says, no, 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 no. But clearly these are swappable, we have a lot of interchangeable parts, right? And our brains are very similar. Therefore, Considering the, the great similarity of our physiology, our biology, brains, visual faculties, and so forth and so on, and the fact that appearances are arising, now this is just straight Buddhism, appearances, the visual, auditory, and so forth, are arising independent upon our sensory faculties, then it stands to reason that we human beings, even if each of us has our own universe, there's a lot of similarity. So my universe is going to look a lot like yours. If we're standing together looking at the same rainbow, we're going to see something very similar. We'll describe it in very similar terms. Not because there's something out there objectively that exists independently of either of our, that there's, there's actually some rainbow out there that is existed, existing independently of perception. Not true. I don't think anybody believes that if they're thinking about it clearly. But a lot of commonality of experience as human beings because of the biological basis, independence upon which our appearances arise. But then, of course, chimpanzees with a lot of commonality there, too. And then baboons, and then monkeys, and then dogs, and cats, and then, you know, keep on going. Birds, warm-blooded, you know, a lot of commonality there. We keep on going to lizards and other animals, so we see also a lot of commonality there. Not as much, but still a lot of commonality. Right? So we have a shared, intersubjective, a lot of sharing, a lot of commonality of our experience of this planet by beings insofar as they have common karma, which is manifesting by way of common biology. But the real core point here, in both the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the Majjhamak Interpretation, Sutrayana, and then over in, in Dzogchen, in Vajrayana generally, is there is no universe out there that is existing in and of itself prior to and independent of all consciousness. The consciousness happens to pick up. And that's exactly emptiness. 
That question is coming up. Is there really a world out there existing in and, of, in, in and of itself, which we are representing, representing with our scientific theories? That's actually now, since, really since the 20th century, hardly was scientifically questioned before then. But with rising quantum mechanics, that becomes a real issue. Is really now, now that you know, quantum mechanics has happened, the whole issue of probability functions, potentialities, collapse of wave functions, the role of measurement, the role of the observer, unresolved issues. On that point, there's a consensus that people working in the field of quantum mechanics know, and they're very clear about this, we do not have consensus, we don't know what it means. These are unresolved issues for the last 90 years. We have a lot of ideas, but they all recognize, no, we don't have consensus. We don't have a science of how is reality really, and is there even a reality that, any, that makes any sense can be a, it can even be affirmed that exists independently of all systems of measurement. It's an open question. It was not an open question in the 19th century. And Albert Einstein, who ironically was one of the great pioneers of quantum mechanics, who introduced the very notion of photon, of quanta of energy that actually traveled through space and so forth. Um, he never felt comfortable with quantum mechanics. He always felt it was incomplete misleading in some profound respects because he was absolutely con convinced, and I think he never questioned, that there is an absolutely existent world out there, created by some higher intelligence that he called God, when he said God doesn't play dice. Not a God to pray to, not a God that messes around with the universe, but just some higher intelligence out of which this universe, with its sublime regularities, its mathematical simplicity and elegance and all of that, but he was convinced to his dying day there's a real universe out there. And that's what we scientists are trying to understand. And that view is held by many, many scientists to this day, by virtually all of the scientists of the 19th century. But now there are a number of physicists that say, well, this is why he got blocked, my friend. This is why he spent the last 25 years of his life coming up with nothing. Because he was always assuming that and trying to find this grand unified field theory unifying the laws of electromagnetism and gravity, and just coming up with one equation after another, and really just simply got nowhere. He was not approaching an answer. He simply never got an answer. Perhaps that's because it was all based on an underlying false assumption. In any case, coming back to Buddhism, then, this is not incompatible with modern science. It's an open question in quantum mechanics. Is there a universe? Is there a universe? a one-verse, a one-reality, a one-cosmology that's absolutely out there prior to an independent of all measurement, prior to an independent of all conceptual designation. Open question. The answer is, the answer is we don't know. That's what the sharpest minds in quantum mechanics, modern physics say. We don't know. And they haven't made any progress on that for 90 years. The measurement problem is as unsolved as now as it was then. But let's bring this back to Buddhism now just because we don't have much time. And that is, I will say this, and I'm ready to be, I'm ready to be reputed, because I don't have a dogmatic allegiance to this, but I've, so often, you know, I come to a conclusion because I see that's the only thing left standing. You know, it's the only one left over. And here's the indicator of that. Now just classic straight Buddhism. And that is, whether it's Mahayana teachings, whether it's Vajrayana or Dzogchen teachings, it said when you come to the culmination of the path, you're almost there. You're a 10th stage Aryabhutasattva. Or in Zogta, they even have 13, 13 stages, 13 Bhumis. But you're almost there, right? And you're about 
to cross the threshold, move out of the realm of being a sentient being and move into the realm of being a Buddha. Right? Where will you achieve Buddhahood? Where will you be? What will be, what will be your location? You're going to be someplace. So might it be everybody goes to Bodhgaya? Or maybe Lhasa or Detroit? You know, is there a certain place? Or just, you know, one in Detroit, one in Chicago, one in like that. From the outside, of course it is that way. From the outside, other people looking on, oh, it was Bodhgaya, oh, he achieved enlightenment and calm, he achieved enlightenment and shield, he achieved enlightenment and amdo and so forth. From the outside, but from your side, from your side, when you look around, what do you see? And the uniform teaching is, and now this is not an interpretation, the uniform teaching is where you are is Akanishta. Akanishta. The highest, most sublime Buddha field. And that's what you perceive. That's what you perceive. You may be in Detroit for other people, but what you're experiencing is Akanishta. You're in the center of your mandala. And so this brings this right to Dzogchen. When you are viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa, and let's imagine it's unmediated, it's not filtered, you're not just getting aspects of Rigpa, but you're getting it straight, unmediated, conceptual, non-conceptually unmediated. You're simply viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa. Rigpa is beyond karma. It's never touched by karma. Right. So now you're seeing, well, frankly, we call this a Kansai perspective in the Buddhist except we don't use that terminology. But it's a Rippa-eye perspective. It's a, great, it's a great perfection perspective, which means you're viewing, you're experiencing. You're viewing, that's the word. Viewing with your, with your eyes, your ears, and so forth. You're viewing reality from the perspective of Rippa. Rippa is not human. If the subsidiary consciousness isn't human, and it's not, but it's conditioned by karma, conditioned by habitual propensity, it's conditioned by mental afflictions, including delusion. That comes with a whole substrate consciousness package, right? But Rigpa is beyond that. Rigpa is not only not human, it's not sentient being. It's not the mind stream of a sentient being, utterly transcends, but primordially, primordially transcends. It's not outgrown, it was never touched by karma, right? So therefore, when you're viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa, well, that's the perspective of Dharmakaya, that's the perspective of Buddha. And so pure vision is intrinsic. It's not something you imagine. Divine pride, knowing you are a Buddha, that's not something you imagine, it's something you know. If you're viewing reality from Rigpa, you're viewing reality from Dhammakaya. You're viewing reality from Buddha's perspective. Not some other Buddha, you Buddha. Right? So therefore, since your mind is pristinely pure, primordially pure, the environment that you, that you experience, that you perceive, from that perspective, is nothing other than a Buddha field. And everybody you encounter, everybody you encounter, are seen, you don't imagine this, you see it. Everybody you encounter are none other than displays of Buddhas, of, of Viras, of Dakinis, of, of Buddhas. That's all you see. Everything is simply displayed a pure vision. But again, not visualized. It is simply what's there. It's what you see from that perspective. So the practice of Dzogchen is simply resting in Rigpa, with, of course, nothing to achieve because you're already there. There's nothing to acquire because you're already there. There's no effort needed because you're already there. 
you always have been. It's the ground ripper, the path ripper, the fruition ripper, but it's the same ripper. And from ripper's perspective, the ground, the path, and the fruition are all simultaneous. Because ripper is in the fourth time. It's not embedded in the current time, or the past, present, and future. So that's your universe. When you're viewing reality from the perspective of ripple, that's your universe. And you're in the center of it. But of course, it's not just being a total dorkopus of a sentient being, total dork, and then boom, you know, Vidyavada or Buddha. So all these gradations in between of unveiling, 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 right? Such that your vision, your view, of the world is getting purified. You're transcending the filters of karma, and you're transcending the distortions of mental afflictions. And so your world is shifting. So you could be in a room full of people or in a city of people who have no practice of dharma, that it's just totally mundane, where big ego is considered healthy. Lots of anger shows you've got a lot of machismo, and a lot of lust because you're a real man's man, or a really sexy woman. That's normal, that's healthy. So everybody around you could be just avidly pursuing the bounties of samsara, and you could be there in the city. And they're just experiencing pretty much the same city from year to year, year to year, because that's samsara, does. it just repeat performances. In the midst of the same city, if you're purifying, the city you're dwelling in, is shifting in a very radical way. And it's not only the appearances of the city, it's the city. Because there is no city that exists in and of itself, independent of anybody's perception, independent of anybody's conceptual framework. It's all arising relative to. If it didn't, then there'd be an inherently existent city, in which case then throughout Mahayana, Vajrayana, and Dzogchen, this will be all false. Because there's a real city. But there isn't. So you could be in any city you like, right? And then you're going to find, it's called Neyurva, that your environment changes. And it's not merely the appearance, it's the environment. It's not only the appearance of you, it's you. It's not only the appearance of your body, it's your body. Because there is nothing more to your body than the appearance of the body. Nothing more to your environment, nothing more to you, nothing more to your mind than the appearance of your mind. And it's all shifting, but it's all entangled. As you are shifting your subject, the environment you're experiencing is shifting. As you're, experiencing, as you're shifting your chitta, you're shifting your dhamma. Right. So, whether through one's practice, whether through reading, receiving pointing out instructions, whether through setting Dzogchen text, pondering and dwelling and saturating the mind in them, returning to meditation, one way or another, you may have some opening, some cutting through, some open, clearing of the clouds, and this shift into lucidity in the waking state, where things are not merely brighter, that's just shamatha and subject consciousness. No, lucidity means you've shifted your axis, your way of viewing reality is from a different perspective. You're getting some glimmering, some aspect, some insight into Rigpa. Happens again in pointing out instructions where something really, really meaningful happens. The clouds open, and then the llama goes away, and then the clouds blow back again. 
So here is really one of the most important questions one can possibly ask in Dzogchen. Once you know it, once you have had some glimmering, some insight, whether through pointing out instructions or any other way, and again, sometimes it happens spontaneously, right? which means nobody owns it. If it happens spontaneously, you can't say it belongs to Buddhists or to Christians or Taoists. If it happens spontaneously, that's it. Right? And so I do not believe, just not just my opinion, I do not believe that Buddhists have a monopoly on realization of Rupa. I don't believe it. Could be. Then I'll, I'm glad I belong to the right club. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I don't believe it. So I could be wrong, but I think I probably won't go for a, to a lower realm for being wrong in that way. So one way or another, you may have some opening, but then it gets closed. So then we can ask, all right, but if this is already our nature, just as the relative ground state of your mind is already substrate consciousness, not something to acquire, to achieve, it's already there. It's by nature blissful, luminous, non-conceptual, but again, I've discussed how that gets obscured. Obscured by what? Again, this is easy, right? There really is a snappy answer to that, and it's exactly right. And you don't get any further. Why aren't we experiencing the bliss, the luminosity, and non-conceptuality of substrate consciousness all the time? What's obscuring it? It's our birthright, for heaven's sakes. Why have we lost the, the combination to the safe? Well, it's very easy. Five obscurations. Craving, ill will, laxity and dullness, excitation and anxiety, and afflictive uncertainty. Five obscurations. Dispel those, and what's left is balanga, substrate consciousness. Welcome home. Welcome home in samsara. You've come to the basement of samsara. None of the erections that come out of it, as a man, a woman, dog, devo, what have you, but you come to the basement, to the cell, the cell stem, the stem, the stem cell, cell stem, stem cell, stem cell. Uh, you know what I'm saying. But that's just a relative level. That's just our relative inheritance, relatively, so relative ground, upon the basis of which we develop all these multiple identities, right? from lifetime to lifetime, from daytime to dreamtime. You have a multiple identity from daytime to nighttime. You can have a different identity in the dream, and then the next dream may be somebody else. Who knows? But if we go for our core identity, okay, well, when all is said and done, who are we really? I mean, down to, well, then it's Rigpa. And this is beyond time, immutable bliss, the wellspring of all virtue, the wellspring of all happiness, the wellspring of all wisdom, the wellspring of all creative potential, all energy, all there. It's who we actually are. Then why the heck are we not experiencing that every day? Why are we not just blissfully wandering around? Not even wandering around, just enjoying being Buddhas. What's obscuring it? This is already there. What's obscuring it? Well, then it's not just the five obscurations. That's not enough. You can dispel those. You can clean those out, which is shamatha. That's nice. This luminosity. That's not. That's nice. But that's not. That's not rigpa. Some faint reflection. It's not radically other than Rigpa, but to realize substrate consciousness is not to realize Rigpa. So to run through that, and then we'll go for dinner. But I think this is important, to see the big picture. And what's the job to be done? What's the job to be done to realize substrate consciousness? Remove the five obscurations. One way or another, <clears throat> developmental model, discovery model, but one way or another, that's what needs to be done. Achieve shamatha, access to the first jhana. The five obscurations are gone. That's it. Theravada, into Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, all the same. There's a lot of consensus there. That's a discovery. That's not a sectarian belief or view or opinion or interpretation. That's the way it is. That's 
pretty hardcore contemplative science. But when you go to Rinpa, this deepest level, what obscures it? Why are we not just experiencing that in an unmediated fashion every single moment? And now we have layers. The appearances we see. Look around. The appearances we see. Look into your mind. Look at the appearances that arise there. These are called impure appearances. Impure appearances. And they are generated by karma. That's what you see. If you're free of karma, if you're dwelling in the river, you can look at the same room and you'll be experiencing pure one. But if you're resting in your psyche and your appearances are rising independence upon your brain with impure, contaminated karma and mental opinions, then you see this. You see, oh, he's quite nasty, he's pretty self-centered, he's a, he's a really nice guy, she's quite pleasant, she's quite, mm, quite narcissistic, and so forth and so on. You see everybody making sense to yourself, and you're seeing all of your own mental afflictions displayed as other people. <laughs> and as the Tibetans often like to say, when you look at your guru, you see your guru, well, he's pretty much like myself, or she, let's say she. She is pretty much like myself, but a little bit better. <laughs> That's your guru. <laughs> like the Dalai Lama. Kind of like us, but. He's happier. <laughs> and he smiles more than we do. More charismatic than most. Or I, one, I, heard, I heard one fellow, a friend of my father, who went to see Dalai Lama many years ago in Southern California. He came and he reported back. He's a Dalai Lama like, he's a nice guy. <laughs> what a color. He's a nice guy. He nailed it. <laughs> he saw what he could see. You know I'm not being sarcastic. He saw what he can see. That's what his karma allowed him to see. On the other hand, some of you have had the great good fortune to meet, to be in the presence of Kandrava. Kandrava. She's one of the purest beings I've ever encountered. And when she came down to India with a passionate yearning to meet his holiness, her first vision of him was when he was, he was being driven to the airport, driven down to, to the valley in a little little caravan of cars, and his car came along, and she, like other Tibetans, was sitting there you know, with her kata. But this was her first encounter, because she was just a village girl from Tibet, nobody special, right? And so she's waiting there with the kata, and the Dalai Lama's car is driving by. What did she see? Young, what he looked like. What did she see? When the, when the car came by, she saw rays of white light emanating from the car. And then when she saw inside the car, she saw a thousand armed Avalokiteshvara. That's what she saw. Now, other people will see that really smiling face of Dalai Lama. That's what she saw. So she had her own universe. In her universe, Avalokiteshvara appears. In Dujum Lingba's universe, Padmasambhava, Yeshe Sogyo, appeared to him as his teachers from the time he was a child. And later, again and again, in Tsongkhala's universe, Majushi appears to him. And he has question and answer sessions with Majushi. You know, he has some gnarly issues in Madhyami, he didn't quite understand it. So Majushi crops up and he has question and answer with Majushi. What would other people see? Nothing. 
So one thing that veils rape, impure appearances, just the appearances that are being thrown up, projected, brought forth by the power of karma. So there's one. And then also impure sense of I am, I am Sanjami. I am Sanjami. That grass impure sense of identity. That will block it. That obscures it. Putting a cloak over it. I am a Sanjami. As in, you know, I'm a Sanjami. Even conventionally, that's the interesting part. Even conventionally, even relatively, without reification, having the sense, well, after all, I'm a Sanjami. Even that obscures. That's why it's called Samvritti Satya. Kunzok Dhamma. A truth, it is a truth. Am I a Sanjami? Of course. No news there, he already knew that. But that truth, and it is a truth, Kunzo completely veils a deeper truth. Samvritti totally veils, totally obscures the deeper truth. So it is a true. You are Sanjami? I don't know, but this one I know. Sanjami, for sure. I'm not delusional. Sanjami, is that the only truth? Well, maybe not. Is this Phuket? Yes. Might it also be Akanishta? Maybe that's a deeper truth that's veiled by our karma and the impure appearances of karma. So that's one veil. Ordinary sense of identity, impure vision, impure appearances. Now we go back to Sutrayana, and of course that's dealt with in Vajrayana, right? If you have the realization that all appearances of yourself and all phenomena, and that includes every person you encounter, including your guru, if you have some realization that none of them are inherently existent, even if your guru speaks broken English, or makes mistakes sometimes, bad grammar, or misquotes a text, you say, well, I know he's not a Buddha, he just misquoted that text. I knew better, I memorized that, but he blew it, you know. If you have some insight that your guru has no inherent existence from, let's say, her, from our own side, there is no inherently existent guru there, and therefore no inherently existent sentient being there. Even though manifesting an awful lot like a sentient being, you know, maybe getting a bit grumpy at times, a bit impatient at times, maybe overeating at times, etc. If you really have insight, there is no sentient being there from the guru's side, and also from all of my dharma companions, my dharma brothers and sisters, none of them are inherently sentient beings from their own side. Oh, yeah, and that's true for everybody else. Oh, and that's true for the entire environment. Nothing there is from its own side. If you actually have realization of that, it's not enough to have realization of the emptiness of your own identity. It has to be the realization of emptiness of all phenomena, and that's everybody within the phenomena. If you have that realization, then, with an act of will, you dissolve everything into emptiness. That primordial indivisibility of emptiness, dhammadatu, and primordial consciousness, or dhammakaya, omasvabhavashudasavadamasvabhavashudoham, dissolving everything from your perspective. In other words, you've not, you know, just killed trillions of people. Like, oh, he's going into Vajrayana meditation again. Oh, you do. <laughs> no, it's just your world you're dissolving into emptiness. The person sitting right next door, they've got their universe. And they're just smoking a cigarette and watching a soap opera. That's their universe right now. But right here in the next door, you could be dissolving everything into emptiness and now out of emptiness by the power of imagination. That's how you, that's how you get by. You circumvent the impure appearances and the ordinary sense of identity 
dissolve it all. If you don't know how to dissolve it all, if that's not true for you, then this is all just pretending, like pretending to be cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, a children's game, a superficial, silly. The Dalai Lama told me that particularly. If you don't realize emptiness, then imagine you're Yamataka. That's a lot of bull. I thought I'd get a little bit more chocolate than that. There's a lot of bull. I mean, a big bull. But if you realize emptiness, then out of that, by the power of imagination, skillful means, then you override the impure appearances of karma. You override your conventionally accurate sense of your own identity. Since it's not inherently true, then throw out that conceptual designation and bring in another one. If I'm not inherently a human being, not inherently a sentient being, then fooey on that, out of emptiness, I'm going to designate myself as Vajrasattva, Yamataka, whoever. So that's a way of overcoming, of removing the veils of ordinary appearances generated by karma and removing the veils of ordinary sense of identity, even convention. Right? Going deeper and quick, fit, quick, uh, fit, finishing up quickly here, it's called Nyeavarana, cognitive obscuration. Nyeavarana. And it comes in different flavors, but one of these most, most strongly highlighted in the Sutrayana teachings is that the sheer fact that appearances seem to be coming from the inside. Right? That I look over at Jeffrey and that Jeffrey really seems to be over there. Just that is an obscuration. Just that is misleading. That's an obscuration. That obscures the nature of reality. Obscures the nature of Dhammadatu, obscures the nature of Rikpa. There it is, and that happens in lucid dreams, as well as for an Arya Bodhisattva after realizing emptiness. That's why it's still there. It's still there even going up to the eighth Bhumi. That's really far up. But that Nyeya Avaran is still there. By the eighth Bhumi, all your glaciers are finished forever. But the Nyeya Avaran, cognitive obscurations, obscurations to full omniscience, they're still there. Things still appear to be as they are not. That's an obscuration. That veils the full nature of Rikpa and its effulgences. Right? Then we come back cruder to mental afflictions. That was near, that was subtle level of obscuration. We come to a coarser level. This is klesha, klesha avaran, the afflictive obscurations. Well, this is craving, hostility, delusion, and all of that business. And the way we think, how do, you, how do people appear to us when we're angry at them? How do they appear to us when we have a lot of attachment to them? How do we appear to ourselves when we have low self-esteem? How do we appear to ourselves when we're feeling narcissistic, superior, and so forth? Well, all that obscures. All of it. That's kleshavara. Obscures by way of klesha, by way of mental afflictions, a whole array of them. The core being, of course, delusion. So that's got to go. That's why there's no possibility of having any sustained experience or realization of rigpa when you've not realized emptiness. Because those veils of kleshavara and shniyavara, they're going to come in like a dark, like dark clouds are just going to cover it all over again. Just whoosh, And it'll be blanketed. Rip is still there, you're not going to see it. Because you've not realized emptiness, you're still reifying. Still reifying. And now finally, and then we'll have our dinner. One more thing. And that is you get some, let's say, pointing out instructions. You, get, you ascertain something is breathtaking, monumental, the most important thing ever happened in your whole life. Some breakthrough, you have some taste of Rikpa. The Lama's right there, you're experiencing it and your mind starts to wander. 
or the lamb is really cute, <laughs> or pot-bellied, or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. <sighs> totally obscured. Totally obscured. Mind-wandering. Whatever your realization is, if you don't even have shamatha of stillness and clarity, that's enough. That'll screw it. That'll obscure it. So it's very wonderful to have the clouds, the veil, the peak of Mount Everest open up for a little bit, knowing that they will close. But then you see all these veils upon veils upon veils upon veils right down to the, the valley floor. And what's in the valley floor is you can't focus your attention on anything for more than 10 seconds. And if you can't do that, end of story. That's why Padmasambhava says this. Vedaplingva, Buddhat, Songkhapa, Dujonglingva, etc., etc., etc. At least that. And the notion that somehow if you get pointy out instructions, that you can just do there. I mean, a year ago you had this wonderful experience, and I'm just going to rest here and wait for Santa Claus to come to town and deliver a nice gift of Rigpa again. Without doing shamatha, without doing vipassana, and of course skipping stage of generation completion, that's a lot of work. So I'm just, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. We don't do like what they do in Theravada, in the Sutra Yama. You know that, you know, the shamatha business. The passion is something, the No, we just rest, I'm just, I'm just resting in Rigpa. You're resting in your coarse dualistic mind with agitation and dullness. And if you want to call that Rigpa, you're welcome to do it. Good luck with that. Well, that's good. That's it. So, Dujum Lingba says in the his foolish dharma of an idiot clothed in mud, mud and feathers. He says, I'm no beggar, and I've emptied out my satchel, and there's nothing left. That's all I have to say, I've emptied out my satchel. I have nothing, nothing in my mind at all. It's empty. So enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning. Let's continue practice. <laughs>